Hey y'all, this episode is brought to you by my new book, Find Your Rainbow. Find Your Rainbow is a full-color guide and activity book filled with interactive and positive ways for young readers to work through issues like self-esteem, positive thinking, and even bullying. I worked on this book for two to three years. It is filled with tons of colorful illustrations, my personal stories, and I think it will really help the girls in your life. You could find the book online, but really, I recommend going to your favorite independent bookstore and asking them for Find Your Rainbow. Hello, and welcome to Rainy Day Diaries, an imperfect podcast that will dive headfirst into how you can thrive in your creative life and business, even if you struggle with mental wellness. I am your host, Jennifer Lynn, and as a longtime struggler of anxiety and depression myself, I hope this podcast will help you realize that you could still get stuff done when you deal with all these crazy things on a daily basis, that you're not alone, and that falling down does not mean you won't get back up again. I thank you so much for listening, and as always, if you have any suggestions, Questions or questions or topics you'd love to hear about, please email me at jenniferlynn at gmail.com. Thanks. Enjoy the show. In this week's episode of Rainy Day Diaries, I am over the moon excited to have had the opportunity to interview Lori Gottlieb. Lori is a powerhouse. She is seriously big potatoes. Lori is a psychotherapist, a New York Times bestselling author, a nationally recognized journalist, and a weekly Dear Therapist columnist for The Atlantic. She's also an incredible storyteller and is breaking down the stigma of mental wellness one inspiring project at a time. In this episode, we chat about Lori's new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, about the misconceptions of therapy, communication during the social media craze time, and some incredible projects Lori is working on in 2020. Make extra sure to listen to minute 9 and 14. There's so much wisdom there. And then after the show, make sure to head to the show notes, jenniferlynn.com slash blog slash 49 to find all the links to Lori's new adventures, including her new TED Talk, which you need to listen to. And hear why I was so nervous to interview her. It's not why you would think. Also, say hello on Instagram. Feel free to screenshot the episode and tag me, and I'd love to give you a shout out and thank you so much for listening. Now, Enjoy episode 49 with Lori Gottlieb. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Lori. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I always ask my guests, what did you want to be growing up? And then how did that lead to what you're doing now? Wow. Um, I was not one of those people who had any idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. So, um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that one. <laughs> I, I was not one of those people who was like, when I grow up, I'm going to be this. Well, for someone who doesn't know exactly what they wanted to be grow up, growing up, you actually had a lot of career paths previous to like writer and eventually therapist, which is now. Right. And in fact, that's probably, that's probably why I took such a circuitous route to becoming a therapist, because I think that I tried a lot of things out in adulthood. And, you know, they look like they're all very disparate careers, but really every single career that I did was about story and the human condition. And I didn't realize that at the time, but if you look back, they're all very related. So I knew when, you know, probably as a child, I knew that my interests were story and the human condition. I was a voracious reader. Um, I was always interested in why people were doing what they were doing, why people behaved the way they behaved. Um, and so I think that the careers that I chose all were in, fell under that rubric. That makes sense. Cause originally you became like a communications, you, you did like 
executive for television. That's kind of stories in itself. And then, right. So when I graduated from college, I worked um, in film development, and then I moved over to NBC, and I did um, primetime series development. And we were working with story in the human condition. In fact, the two shows that were premiering when I first got to NBC were ER and Friends. And I know that one, and I know that that they seem like very different shows, but I think that even Friends as a sitcom, I think that it had such longevity because it was really about these, these deep human emotions that we have about who am I and how do I love and be loved and all of those questions. Um, what is friendship? What is connection? And in ER, we were telling these very, you know, nuanced human stories, but we had a consultant on the show who was a real ER doctor and I would hang out in the ER with him a lot. And I was fascinated by the real stories, um, not, the, not the fictional ones. I, of course, I, I love the fictional ones, but there was something about those inflection points in the ER because nobody comes to an ER because they expected something to happen. That's <laughs> the whole nature of an ER. Um, and, and then you see people's lives kind of turn in one way or another. And um, so I went up to medical school, which, you know, I thought would be sort of more of this experience of the human condition. Um, but I went to medical school when it was the era of managed care was just beginning. And I realized that I wouldn't be able to um, kind of spend that kind of time with my patients in the same way. And so I, I left to become a journalist where I could tell people stories. And then... Um, and then later, after I had a baby, when I craved an adult human to talk to during the day, if any parents are out there, they'll understand, um, <laughs> I would kind of detain the UPS guy. He would come with, you know, diapers and you know, all the myriad things that one needs when you have a newborn. And I'd be like, how about those diapers? Do you have kids? How's the weather? And he would literally at some point kind of tiptoe to my door and gently place the package down so that he would not have to interact with me and be detained by me during his delivery route. And so I called up the dean at the medical school I'd been at and said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, you know, psychiatry is a lot of medication management. And if you can do talk therapy, if you become a psychiatrist, but why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and then you can do the talk therapy and not have to go through residency with a toddler. And, um, and that's what I did. So I think everything I did was really about, you know, I mean, even as a journalist where I was telling people stories as a therapist, I feel like I'm helping people to change their stories. I deal a lot with story in the therapy room. And that's so fascinating the way you like interweb perspectives, like you have a way of explaining like, everything you do in like the same kind of manner, like, telling stories and thinking about the perspective of multiple people who are going through the same story. And it's really fascinating how you kind of interweaved all of that. Yeah. I mean, what I tried to do in, in the book is I tried to, um, you know, I'm telling these stories, but I think that we can see ourselves reflected in other people's stories. So even if on the surface you think, oh, I don't have anything in common with this person or that person. Actually, you do, <laughs> because underneath it all, I think we're all more the same than we are different. And when you peel away the external part of the story, the reason they came in or who they are or you know what their personalities are like, and you get down to the core of what their issue is, I think we all can relate. We all have experienced something like that 
but I'm telling it through a story and I'm examining, I'm explaining as I tell the story, why I'm thinking what I'm thinking or doing what I'm doing or moving the story forward in a certain way. So there's sort of this meta level to the stories that people are reading in the book. Do you have any advice for people who are non-therapy believers? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to proselytize therapy in the book. In fact, the title, maybe you should talk to someone doesn't necessarily mean maybe we should all go to therapy. Um, it means maybe we all need to talk more to each other. I feel like we're having this sort of crisis of connection in our culture right now where we're hyper-connected in some ways through, you know, our phones. Um, but in other ways, we don't get that experience of sitting face-to-face -face with another person, what I do in therapy for 50 minutes straight, um, with no distractions, with no phones on the table, no screens on the wall, um, you know, where we're really present with each other. And I feel like people are suffering because of it, because of that, something that used to happen very organically out in the world that is not. And so maybe you should talk to someone just means we need to talk to each other more and not in the curated social media way. I guess I mean more like I actually read Stick Figure when it first came out and I related so much because my mom and dad both love shopping. My dad was distant like so, and I actually had an eating disorder as well. So and there's so many behind the scenes reasons why they are the people they are, but they where there's a lot of recurring issues, but they don't believe in therapy. Like uh, I see that's you for sick people or, you know, not right. I think that's such a, well, first of all, I think that's a generational misconception too. Um, but I, you know, I think that in other generations, it was therapy is pathologized. Therapy is, if something is wrong with you, you go and you get fixed in therapy. It's what we call the identified patient in a family, which is that the person, usually the person who's most healthy is the person who's symptomatic. And it's the person who, because they're holding the symptoms for the family. And they're also um, the person in a marriage, for example, the person who says, I think we should go to therapy is usually the healthier person because that person is saying, I'm not putting, you know, turning a blind eye to what's going on. I think we need to pay attention to our relationship. I think we need to pay attention to what's not working so we can get help with it. Uh, but that person becomes identified as the identified patient, the IP. And it seems like, well, you go to therapy if you think there are problems, right? Or if you are symptomatic, if you're depressed, anxious, um, not eating, whatever it is, right? Um, you go to therapy and get fixed. As opposed to realizing that there's a whole system that, that is going on. There's a saying that um, a supervisor said when I was an intern about people who are depressed. She said, before, depressing, uh, sorry, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they're not surrounded by assholes. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> right? And so, you know, because there are some really good reasons why somebody might be depressed that might be external. On the other hand, a lot of people um, feel like if they, if they make, you know, if they make the appointment for therapy that people are going to say, see, I always told you, you're the problem. Do you think that people who are older and have such a hard, fast, thought about therapy could be swayed to just view it as like an, a way to communicate? Right. Well, that's why um, it's, it's a way to communicate. And it's also a way to, to see oneself um, in a way that helps them navigate the world more smoothly. Um, you know, I think a lot of parents feel like, oh, no, my child's going to therapy and they're going to talk about me the whole time and I'm going to be blamed and criticized. We're not there to 
um, blame people for what they did. We're, I, in fact, the parents are kind of beside the point in the sense of we're not there to, um, you know, form an opinion about the parents. It's more about you understanding how your experiences in life, which includes your experiences with your parents, inform the present. We're not there to go back and redo whatever didn't work in the past. We're there to say, what is happening now in your life where you might have a skewed perspective on it? What happens to you now where maybe you're very unkind to yourself, or maybe there's a script in your head that you're carrying around with yourself that isn't servicing you well? Um, maybe there's a way that you relate to other people based on an old template that isn't accurate anymore. And maybe let's look at what's happening in the present when you are in relationship or friendship or um, in a professional situation. How is that template affecting the decisions you make, the, the choices you're making, the ways that you might be holding yourself back? I would imagine, and maybe I'm wrong, I would imagine being a therapist could feel draining at the end of the day because you're listening and so intently to someone else's maybe tragic stories. I'm curious, do you have any self-care routines after like long days or just things that you do to keep your mind right like the next day or with your son? Yeah, I think that first of all, we have consultation groups. Um, a lot of people don't know that because when you're a therapist, you're working alone in a room with a person or a couple or a family. And no one's there to say like, at minute 22, that was an amazing intervention, right? So like <laughs> in other jobs, you get positive feedback. No one gives that to us except that you see your patients improve, but it's, it's a little less direct than that. And so, you know, on the other hand, we also don't have people who say, you know, at minute 22, I might've done this because, you know, here's, here's another way of thinking about what didn't work in that session. So our consultation groups are a way for us to present our cases every week with our colleagues and get feedback on, you know, places that were stuck or even to talk about things that went well. Um, so that's part of self-care is that we're not holding it all for ourselves. We're not, you know, holding everything without having a net that we can go, you know, like a, a net to hold us, which is our consultation group. We also go to our own therapy. Um, and also I think that, I don't look at it as draining. I think that what we do is really inspiring. When I go to work every day, I feel like the people who come to see me are doing incredible things that are so inspiring. There are all these heroic moments that happen in the therapy room where somebody did something small that was different. And it's huge, even though it seems small. Um, and when those small things add up, eventually that person's life is transformed in ways when you look at them from when they came in to when they left, their lives are completely different. And so I see people take a risk that they couldn't take before. I see them set a boundary they couldn't set before. I see them not sabotage themselves and end up with something they really, really wanted because they stepped out of their own way. That's heroic to me to take away you know, years or decades of a pattern and to say, I'm going to do something different. And even though it feels scary and uncertain, I'm going to take that step. So I, I love it. I feel like it's not draining at all. That's amazing. Is there any way, so I know we end up either raising our children, like our families, different than our families. Is there any intentions you've created to raise a boy in the world today. I have a son too. So like, but he's only 18 months. So I'm like, <laughs> my goal is to just let him be himself completely. And I'm curious what your intentions are for your son. 
<laughs> you know, there's this saying about the, the child of a therapist that um, the good news is that when you're the child of a therapist, nothing gets swept under the rug. The bad news is that you'll be totally screwed up anyway. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think being a parent is hard. And I think, um, you know, how do I want to raise him um, to be a good human being? I want him to be someone who is comfortable with himself who can see himself clearly, which means that he can see his flaws and be compassionate to himself about those and, and also say, well, what can I do about them? Um, if he makes a mistake to take ownership of it. I think one of the things that we do in therapy is to help people take responsibility for their own lives. Meaning, um, what can you do in your own life to treat yourself and others in a way that feels, that aligns with your values? Um, and I think you'll be off to a good start if you, you know, start, if you begin with that premise. Um, I think that like most people, um, kids can be hard on themselves and they need someone around them who's going to hold up a realistic mirror to them. So not the, oh my God, you breathed, you're amazing. You know, the helicopter parenting, thing. Yep. like everything you do is amazing and you didn't get the role in the school play. And I'm going to call the school because you were the best and you should have gotten that role. That is not helpful. They didn't get the role for whatever reason. Um, and so how do you sit with your disappointment? How do you sit with your sadness? Um, you know, what can you do with it? What can you do the next time when you try out for the play? You know, those kinds of things. So we have to help them to be resilient. Um, but we have to help them to be compassionate people. And it starts with self-compassion. So many times I had a patient in my office, um, you know, you can see in the book, Charlotte, who is someone who just keeps hooking up with the wrong guys. And, you know, eventually she hooks up with someone in the waiting room. Uh, I don't mean in the waiting room, but someone she meets in the waiting room. We don't have, <laughs> we don't have a very exciting office. Um, but, um, you know, she, um, she has so little compassion for herself. She's always, you know, sort of, she just, she, you know, she, she talks to herself in the critical way that she grew up you know, being spoken to. And I think that um, we, you know, I, I had this patient and I said, um, write down everything that you say to yourself for the next few days before you come back to session. And she came back and she had these pages and she said, oh my God, I, I can't read this out loud. I am such a bully to myself. And we don't realize that how cruel we are to ourselves, how judgmental, how we don't give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We would never talk to a friend sometimes the way that we talk to ourselves. And so I think compassion starts in our heads. And the more compassionate we can be with ourselves, the more compassionate we can be with other people. And I think that when you read the stories in the book, you know, in the beginning, it might be hard to feel compassion for some of the people in the book, particularly John. Mm -hmm. um, but you realize, oh, wow, I'm so similar to these people. And that's where the compassion comes in. It's where you can say, I see me in you. Um, that's where we relate to each other. So what's a good way to start if you've been critical of someone in your life to start teaching them compassion and teaching yourself in compassion in return? I think you need to catch yourself, right? I mean, I think you need to, to say, oh, wait, that voice is actually not mine. It's an, it's an internalized voice that I got from somewhere out there. And again, this is not to blame the people um, for what they did, because I really feel like parents do the best that they can, even if the, their best was a C minus or an F, right? It's like, I, it, it's, 
they, they didn't, most parents, I would say, you know, the good majority of parents did not have a child and say, and right. I'm going to treat them badly. Okay. They didn't do that. They just, they, they had their own histories that informed how they think about the world and, and what their capacity for introspection and reflection and connection are. And so many parents are limited in those things because of what they didn't get growing up. And so we can take responsibility for ourselves and say, okay, how do I want to be to myself? How do I want to treat myself? It doesn't have to be the way that people treated me in the past. I get to choose how I treat myself and I get to choose the people with whom I surround myself so that I'm treated in a That's the best part of growing up. When you get to be a certain age and you realize, oh, okay, I'm not this person. It's okay to like these things, like screw everybody else. (laughs) Well, that's the thing is you only get one life. And I think that in Julie's story in the book, we have this young woman and she's, you know, a newlywed and she's dying of cancer. And, you know, she's really, I think, I think that she helps people to think about life has a hundred percent mortality rate. And even if you don't have, you know, her prognosis, um, that we all have a limited time on this planet and we need to think, you know, now, not later, but now, now, this minute, right, right now, we need to think, how do I want to live my life? I get to choose. That's such a revelation to people. I just did a, I saw um, a it was amazing. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. And it was about the stories that we tell ourselves um, about ourselves and about other people and how we can be such unreliable narrators of those stories and that we get to choose how that story goes. We get to choose what the story of our life looks like. We think, oh, you know, because of these circumstances, past, present, um, I, you know, I don't have any control over my life or I can't change this or I can't change that. Well, guess what? There are lots of things you can change if you open your mind to the fact that you will have to Um, do things that feel uncomfortable for you in order to change. So my one last question is going backwards again. I'm curious when you were writing Stick Figure, because you included a lot of details, it's like nonfiction and memoir. So I wrote a memoir about my life growing up as well. And a lot of people in my family are really, my mom in particular was insulted about certain stories I didn't even think were hurtful. I think, I think this goes back Right. I think this goes back to the, to the, what I was saying about story and what I, you know, what I do in the TED talk, which is that, you know, you have a perspective on what happened. Your parents have a perspective on what happened. And both of the stories are true, by the way, from their, from each of your respective perspectives. Um, and so it doesn't help to, um, you know, try to argue the truth of one's story with someone who has a different truth um, if they're not interested in hearing your perspective. Um, You know, in a marriage, I do a lot of couples work. um, It's very important to hear the other person's truth. You don't have to agree with it, but you have to understand that that's their truth, right? And I think sometimes with parents and children um, that the parents feel blamed or criticized when that isn't the intention. Now, sometimes it is the intention, and I can understand why the parents feel blamed or criticized. But I think when you're an adult and you're and you're talking to your parents about something, sometimes parents will be more open to hearing something if they realize that you're trying to get closer to them as opposed to trying to um, you're coming instead of coming at them from a place of anger, you're coming at them 
from a place of reconciliation, from a place of, I want to get closer to you and I can't get closer to you if I feel like we don't understand each other at this point That's in our really lives. That's really good. <laughs> so what are, uh, where can people find you online or offline and what are you working on next, if you are allowed to say? <laughs> sure. So um, I'm doing a, we're doing the TV version of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Um, so Eva Longoria's company is adapting it as a television series. And then, um, I'm going to be doing a podcast in 2020 that Katie Kirk's producing, um, for iHeart. Um, and it's related, uh, to maybe you should talk to someone and also the dear therapist column that I do. Um, it kind of, I'm doing it in conjunction with, the another advice columnist guy winch who has also done some ted talks and he uh is going to be the advice columnist for ted and i'm the advice columnist for the atlantic and so you've got two therapists who are also advice columnists who are also authors of books he's, he's done some books as well and we're going to try to help people through the podcast and um and then i'll probably be doing um another book like maybe you should talk to someone but um one of the things i couldn't include in maybe you should talk to someone were couples because I didn't have enough room. And so I think I will probably explore couples in the next book. I know the word balance is either a loved or hated word by a lot of people, but I'm curious when you work on so many projects and you're still a mom, how do you, how do you balance work on all these different projects? Um, you know, I feel like we just have to always make choices about what we say yes to and what we say no to. And, um, you know, and, and there are consequences <laughs> like, um, you know, some weeks you're going to um, have your patients at your private practice and you're going to have all these other commitments and, it, and your son's going to have a million things that you want to go to of his and um, you're going to have a week where you sleep less. Um, you know, other weeks you just say no to a lot of things. Um, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier, and I think what the main message of maybe you should talk to someone is, which is that we only get one life and we get to choose how we live it. And let's be really intentional about what we choose. And so if you make a choice that you're going to do a lot of things that are really important to you, um, this is important to me because I feel like I'm opening up the conversations around emotional health. I'm trying to destigmatize these conversations and make them just part of our normal human experience, which they are anyway. We're just not talking about them. And so when you're on a mission, I think you sometimes, some weeks you'll take on more than maybe you would have otherwise because there's something you're doing in life that feels really important to you. I totally understand. <laughs> I thank you so much for giving me your time and I'm so excited about your 1 million adventures that are going to be happening in 2020. Well, thank you so much. And thanks so much for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked the episode, please subscribe or even better, leave a review. It makes iTunes really happy and hopefully makes them share this podcast with other people, which would make me really happy. If you have any ideas for topics to cover or for people you'd like me to interview, please email me. My email address is in the show notes. And thank you again. Have a great day.